I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the Sick movie. Movie lovers. Lovers. Uh, welcome. Very ill. <laughs> I hope no one out there has a cold like ours. <laughs> welcome to the official podcast to of Ground the- Zero. <laughs> We're at Ground Zero, people. I don't know what happened, but it happened yet. <laughs> We're dying. We're dying. This this is the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we talk about... We're not always sick. (laughs) We talk about our week in review, the movies and TV shows we've been watching since the last episode. How we can wash our hands better. Move on to the main event, which is either... About how we shouldn't share popcorn. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Or drinks, for that matter. Oh my god, I'm not going to get through this. No matter how many straws you have, don't (laughs) share the drink, guys. (laughs) We focus on our main event, which is either our main review or topic of discussion, then finish up with film faves, which is our... Hot tea with ginger and lemon. (laughs) Film faves... We hope it helps, but really it doesn't. Film faves are favorite movies around a particular topic, so... Uh, apologies i'm i'm getting over a cold so i'm i'm on the uh, positive end of because that hump now that's shanna that's how the cookie crumbles in a marriage the husband always gets better first and the wife stays behind i don't know about that that's but good. i've been i've been ill the past couple of days shanna is just now getting ill or has been ill for... you guys should get married too and see for yourself if i'm right so <laughs> shanna's a little bit spicy today <laughs> clearly if she seems a little bit off or a little far away from the mic, I apologize. She's doing everything she can, and we're very fortunate to have her in this episode. And that's what a husband should say every time. <laughs> All right, so let's let's get on with what we can expect with this episode. This episode, our main event is a main review of M. Night Shyamalan's film Glass, and... Film Faves is back, and we're doing something a little bit different this time. Uh, it's our favorite love stories of the decade. More details on that to come, but I'm very excited about that. First of all, let's deal with the weekend review. Shanna, you have not really had any time or opportunity to watch anything yourself. Well, that's notable. Is that correct? I've seen nothing. But I have managed to squeak one thing in that I thought was worth talking about. And that is the film Blue is the Warmest Color. Now this, for those who do not know, this is a 2013 French film uh, that was a actually a big hit and romance of that year. It's available on Netflix. Made yes, it is available on Netflix. If you want to check it out after I talk about it, it is it made nineteen point five million dollars. <clears throat> it is based on a twenty ten French graphic novel by Julie Moreau of the same name, and actually was originally released under the name Blue Angel. The film in French actually is the life of Adelaide, chapters one and two. But in the English language, in the English uh, translation of the the title, or whatever they they called it, 
uh, Blue is the Warmest Color, which is the name of the graphic novel. So this story basically details about, I don't know, 10 years, up to 10 years of uh, a couple. The main character's name is Adelaide. She's a French teenager. Uh, she has a chance encounter with uh, an aspiring painter by the name of, oh, what's her name? Emma, played by Leia Sado who American audiences came to know from the James Bond film Spectre. She was the Bond girl in that film. At any rate, it's about basically their relationship. And it is a very sexually raw film and very emotionally raw film. Oh, and did I mention it happens to be a three-hour French love story. But don't let that necessarily deter you. It is the reason why it took me over five years to catch up with it myself, sitting on my Netflix My List for years. But it is a very good film. Adelaide, the, the uh, main actress, Adelaide Exarcho... Man, I apologize for butchering this. Exarcho Plus? She is remarkable in the film. She is completely believable as this character in every age that she is. She really just absolutely grips the camera in every frame. I found myself very much drawn in by her performance in the film. She definitely anchors uh, the film and does hold your attention. It is directed by Abdelatif Kachich. And I apologize again if I mispronounce that name. It's interesting, though, because, you know, that Abdelatif is a male. And I couldn't help wondering, while watching this film with raw sexual, like, raw sex scenes that are, like, like very, like, graphic sex scenes, how different would this film be if it was directed by a woman? You know, what? Uh, to what extent does the film being directed by a man limit the the story or the ways in which it's told? Uh, I, I was I was trying to figure out, you know, we've seen a lot of love stories directed by men where there's a sex scene and it kind of feels a little leery a little erotic and i was trying to think like okay does that apply in this film and i was even wondering like what like do the sex scenes even have a purpose in this film are they necessary in this film and there's a line that comes in the end or towards the end of the film that definitely laid me toward the answer of yes they are absolutely necessary and I feel like Abdullah Talif definitely handled the material as best as and as sensitively as a male could. I think it's a worthwhile film to check out. If you have to split it into two viewings, do so. I feel like I'm, I had to do that, I think. But uh, it's, it's an interesting, and for those who might be interested, it, it does follow the graphic novel very closely. It just changes the ending, which in the graphic novel has a more of a melodramatic turn to it. So I actually prefer the ending of the film over what I read of the ending in the graphic novel. But it, it, it's, it's definitely a worthwhile film. I don't, it's not 
didn't blow me away, but um, a very good film. I give it a 7 out of 10. That's Blue is the Warmest Color from 2013. And if you want to check it out, it is available on Netflix. All right, Shanna, that is all I was able to really see that's worth noting on my own. Let's talk about something that we have seen together, uh, starting with a TV series, a Netflix series, actually, called Altered Carbon. Do you want to talk a little bit about this and explain what this series is about? Altered Carbon is an original Netflix series. It's a sci-fi series, and there's a mystery in this show that is in need of solving. Now, had I known that, I would have watched it sooner. But how my brother described it to me was... It's a world that you live in where essentially your soul is on a hard drive type device and you can switch your soul from different bodies. So you could live to be a hundred, you could live to be as long as you want, as long as your hard drive doesn't get smashed. So what essentially happens is someone very unique in their talents and skills gets brought back after I think 250 years mm, that sounds to right. help to help solve a mystery and that person is played by Joel Kinnaman yes now this is the same person from the killing and people that remember that show it happens in the Seattle area it's oh. an invest it's also you know he's like a assistant detective I guess trying to get his detective level I, I don't know the terminology but he's trying to get that qualification I believe in the killing in the killing and you know he's really young over there and then you see him in this and you're like well you haven't really changed you have a great six-pack but you haven't really changed so I feel like he at this particular actor acted very well in the killing it's suit that show suited him and then when I see him in this, you know, I see everybody else's performances and I'm like, this is really great. Even the guy acting like a that is a robot in the show is more human than this guy. Mm. So it's a little unfortunate with him. So if you can push through it, you'll be fine. There is a stereotypical trope that we, is revealed later. Uh, which rubbed me up the wrong way and it kind of took me out of the enjoyable experience I was having. But... Is it a spoiler to say what that trope is? Uh, yes, I believe so. Okay. But know that it's coming. Uh, there's some interesting things that happen in this world, such as someone who has suffered a psychotic break is being healed and trained to go back into the world in the virtual reality because all she has is her soul on a hard drive device rather than her body as well and I found that to be very interesting mm -hmm. I also found you know torture scenes were happening in virtual reality and I thought that that was interesting I mean if you want a nice psychotic break there you go there we are there's interesting things happening in this world the robot is the most appealing thing I feel amongst a couple other things and uh, they're dealing with interesting themes uh, do you recommend it yeah I recommend it let me share a few of my thoughts 
I feel like one of the things that you said a few times was this interesting ideas. And there's a, there's a lot of interesting ideas in, in this series. I would agree with that, as well as it being visually impressive. There's a lot of visual effects in this series that's on par with some films that we would see. So it's a very cinematic series. It definitely visually sets up its world very convincingly, and it has a lot of interesting ideas. I would agree with you with the issue with Joel Kinnaman as the main character. I have not seen The Killing, but what I have seen of this actor is very bland, very vanilla. He he does not have any charisma as far as I have seen. And so I really feel like it was really challenging to care about his character and what happens and really get drawn in since he's supposed to be our, our anchor to be drawn in and care about what happens in this series. Now, of course, the series does expand to other characters and other subplots and things, but he is, everything comes back to him, and I, I think he is a big flaw for sure in the series. Uh, and the other, the other big thing, a big issue I had with the series was the economy of writing is lacking in this show. This show feels like it has, there's, there's moments and scenes that it could have a better pacing to it. It could get to what it's trying to do or say or what's happening between characters in a shorter amount of time. And instead, it, it feels like it draws things out. Unnecessarily. Correct, yeah. And I got the impression you you were feeling that in the last two episodes in particular. Yeah, it felt like the trope that we were experiencing, they were just going round and round with it. And it's like, if you want to have the trope, fine. But get it over with, mm. you know. That actually brings me to another question. Uh, my last thing. I'm interested, what do you think of the show's depiction of women? And I ask this because there's a lot to, there's a lot of nudity, there's a lot of sex, there's a lot to do with sex workers, or there's these situations where women can be used and abused and disposed of, and it's considered okay because they'll just reboot in another body, what they call them sleeves, in another time. So I'm curious what what you thought about how the how the series treats and the story treats women. Here's the thing with sci-fi: when sci-fi happens, anything's possible, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of the genre. And women are always the disposable ones or the crazy ones. It's just how it is. It's just how they depict things. It's very rare that you see something contrary to that. In the sci-fi genre? In the sci-fi genre. Hmm. It's Interesting. rare. And we can have a discussion later, if you want. But okay. it, the reason I'm saying this is because it doesn't surprise me. And maybe it should surprise me. Because we're this far along in evolution, sci-fi should catch up. Writers of sci-fi, mm -hmm. it should catch up. That we're not... All the same and there isn't just one body type 
because that is very evident in this show. There's just one body type that exists, and it's pristine woman. Mm. Stereotypical desire, you know, mm-hmm. thin body, tall, right. lanky, whatever. Like size ten and, and less, or six, right, or zero. So the depiction of woman here is not very good. There's one woman character. There's one female character that two actually that are very dimensional and not crazy as fuck but the rest are and that's unfortunate do you think the so you don't think those two characters balance out everything else in the show in terms of female characters no i don't Mm -hmm. think those two characters Mm -hmm. balance out the other 12 (laughs) no i don't think that that's a balance no no i don't there's maybe a third one so i'll give that Mm. So I'll give that. There's three decent female characters there. Decent as in we're going beyond... The more than one dimension. Yeah. Beyond mm-hmm. a male gaze, beyond whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Like, I can't even think, and now I'm angry because I'm thinking about it. So it's like... But it didn't hurt the show for you. You still recommend it. I still recommend the show. Just mm-hmm. don't go into it thinking that that women are going to be depicted in an awesome way here. Mm. They're not. I think that's one... I think that's the reason why I ask because, and why I struggle with it in the first place is because I I guess like what you're articulating is accurate. I'm not sure that it is balanced very well. I'm not sure that it's really saying anything that offsets what is shown in the film it does feel like women are disposed of left and right throughout the 10 episodes and ultimately you know for me you have that with the sprawling writing the sprawling narrative and a dud of a lead and ultimately i can't really i i can't recommend the show there isn't enough for me to be able to recommend because it doesn't execute it has interesting ideas, but it doesn't execute things in a strong way. I think the writing could be sharper uh, to communicate its ideas, and the casting could have been better. Um, so I wish that the issue with uh, women in it was the only issue worth discussing. So here's the thing. Here's what is going for it. When you look at all the female characters that are represented in this film, I mean, in this show, there is ethnic variety, That's true. And that's That's pretty freaking cool. So that's what it's got going for it. And very good actresses. Mm -hmm. It's just there's tropes. And there isn't enough body variety, I would say. Absolutely. So uh, I give that series a 5 out of 10 myself. Oh, and don't and don't recommend it. But Shannon does recommend it. You th- seem to think a, a better series. I think it's worth powering through. Yeah. Cool. And season two of that is coming soon. So if you're interested, uh, you can find it on Netflix. Uh, season season one is available. Season two is on its way. That is Altered Carbon. Next, we saw Christopher Robin, a 2018 film that we are catching up with. This is. Disney's pseudo-sequel, live-action sequel to the Winnie the Pooh stories that it's, you know, made famous. Starring Ewan McGregor with the voice talents of Peter Capaldi and, of course, Jim Cummings as Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2. And even Toby Jones, who plays, I believe, Owl in it uh, for a few minutes. 
basically Christopher Robin has grown up into Ian McGregor. He's a very serious man. He's got work. He's a he's under a lot of pressure at work on this particular weekend. He's supposed to go away with the family, but he basically is mandated by his boss come up with a solution to to cut costs, uh, or else they'll have to he'll fire his whole department essentially. So he's got this tension between family and work, and Winnie the Pooh comes along and helps them, so to speak, right? Shannon, that's the basic premise of Christopher Robin. What did you think of this film? I enjoyed it mostly. Um, I felt like when the Winnie the Pooh characters were on screen, that was when when the movie was doing its best, was at its best. So it was really enjoyable hearing Winnie the Pooh singing his I Enjoy My Appetite When I Exercise song. Oh, yeah. It was great he- hearing Tigger singing his song, and they were inserted into the real world. So it was really pretty, really charming. Um, it was great seeing Ewan McGregor walk after Piglet and Piglet saying, Oh, my God, his legs are so long. And it's like he just yeah. couldn't get away fast enough. It was fun seeing Rabbit's logic. You know, it was it was just it was very interesting. I I enjoyed the film. I recommend it. And we had seen uh, Goodbye Christopher Robin from twenty seventeen a few months ago, and it which was actually about the real life Christopher Robin and A. A. Milne. And it seems like you enjoyed this film more. Yes, I enjoyed this one better than the other one. I. I'm not sure I necessarily love or, or really enjoyed either one per se. I think like Mark Forster is a director that I'm not a, a huge fan of. He, of course, made Finding Neverland about the, the writer of Peter Pan. And he made the uh, Daniel Craig James Bond movie that everybody hates, Quantum of Solace. I've, I've never really loved his work. And I find like in this film... He really shows us how Winnie the Pooh, in general, that the, the property is a very sullen and mopey property. And it really takes a while for there to be any spark or life in the story. And in, in, in the scenes that do have that, I do enjoy. And it is interesting how the characters have a somewhat modeled after the 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 actual stuffed animals of the time you know going back to looking more like that and less like the animated versions and i did appreciate that but i don't know this song it's it, the movie kind of is simplistic about the the issues that christopher robin is faced with in his life it's a little obvious and on the nose about the whole like work family dynamic thing and also i feel like it goes in a direction with how the characters interact with the world that begs more questions than anything else so a mixed bag movie for me i i give it a a six out of ten it has moments of enjoyment but it's ultimately probably a pretty forgettable film i think and definitely not what i would call a disney classic do you have anything to add? No, I mean, I, I was just thinking, like, if you just took all the scenes that had the Pooh Bear characters, that would be all I want to see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So that's Christopher Robin from uh, last year. And finally, when we did our last couple episodes, the timing of everything was not quite right for us to be able to focus on the Golden Globe. So we did want to react a little bit to the Golden Globe Awards and also to the Academy Award nominees uh, and talk a little bit about that. Shanna, what are your thoughts on the the Golden Globe Awards and its winners? I was not pleased about Green Book winning Best Comedy. Green Book, mm-hmm. I don't care what anyone says, it's not a freaking comedy. I There's mean, comedic it's, moments. It's a dramedy, but... There's comedic moments. Mm-hmm. Moments. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. mostly, it's not. Was and that your, your biggest contention with that film winning was its category yeah i feel like they just put it in that category so that it would get something and you know i know that they won for best supporting actor and marshall ali is awesome so i don't have anything against that Mm -hmm. but it winning for best comedy i have something against that and it was a surprise because it did beat out the favored the favorite from yorgos lanthimos which we talked about in Well, that's episode. a dark con- comedy, and I get that that didn't win. But I think I was mostly upset that Crazy Rich Asians didn't win, and I thought that that was so thoroughly enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you need to have a thoroughly enjoyable film winning the comedy. Do you feel like Crazy Rich Asians is a better and uh, more deserving film than The Favourite? In this category, in this award ceremony, yes. Interesting, okay. If it was for Oscars, like, I get the favorite should win because it's more, like, fine filmmaking. Hmm. But, like, Crazy Rich Asians was comedy through and through, and it should have won that category. Okay. Um, I felt the actors and actresses who won deserved their awards, though. I was surprised at how much attention Bohemian Rhapsody got, but I was, you know, happy about it, surprised, but happy about it. And I was incredibly pleased that uh, Sandra Oh of Killing Eve won. Ah. She completely deserved it. And I think I screamed and cried for joy. So we've got that going. And I, I, I felt like, you know, Sandra Oh calling out people, you know, white actresses and actors playing Asian parts in films shouldn't be happening anymore. And... I felt like that was a good call out. Mm-hmm. So that's how I felt about the Golden Globes. Was there anything else you wanted to comment on the TV side of things since you're more familiar with the TV shows? That... I was pleased that the Americans won. Yeah. Uh, they deserve it. You know, I haven't seen that that season, but uh, I know that they've done fine work each season. Like, And that actually beat out Killing Eve, too. Yeah. Two shows that you are, have talked about on the podcast. And are a fan of. Yeah, and look, I also feel sentimental in like, well, it's the last year they can win, so they can have it. Um, and they've done really good work consistently throughout mm-hmm. throughout their show. So. Mm-hmm. so for my part, I agree with you to an extent about Green Book winning Best Comedy in the sense that I don't necessarily think it was the best film nominated. I think the favorite actually... I would say it would go The Favorite, Vice, Crazy Rich Asians, then Green Book, right? I can see how you, you have know? that. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I don't think Green Book was the most deserving of that category. Uh, I was surprised that Bohemian Rhapsody won. I love Bohemian Rhapsody. 
but I don't necessarily think it was the most deserving film of the category. I think that that award should have gone to Black Klansman. Yes, I agree. Which, of course, I named on this podcast as the best film of the year a couple episodes back. Um, and it did seem to stretch the film medium a bit, Black Klansman, as opposed to Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, it was definitely doing some interesting things. Glenn Close uh, surprised me as best actress in a drama. I was really expecting Lady Gaga to take that, in all honesty. Uh, she gave a, a, a fantastic performance. But I also have to admit, I haven't seen The Wife, and have hardly, up till the Golden Globes, had hardly heard of that film uh, as well. You know, Rami Malek, very deserving of, of his win, I figured, in that category. It was either him or John David Washington, and I'm really glad to see that uh, he won. The, the, ultimately, the interesting thing about the Globes this year was it was like 50% surprise, 50% expected. You know, I expect Christian Bale to win in his category. I expect Olivia Coleman to win in her category of Best Actress in a Comedy. I, you know, Rami Malek was not a surprise, really. Uh, Regina Keene has been getting big, a lot of buzz in her supporting actress role in If Beale Street Could Talk, so it didn't surprise me. Mahershala Ali, not surprising, in Green Book. And Alfonso Cuaron winning Best Director for Roma. So one of the best aspects of that film is its direction. You know, not surprising that, that he won. But basically, Green Book's winning for Best Screenplay and Best Comedy was a surprise to me, as well as Bohemian Rhapsody winning Best Drama and Glenn Close winning Best Actress. So a lot of surprises there. Now let's talk a little bit about the Academy Award nominations. Are there any surprises or upset things that you noticed in uh, with the nominations? For the Oscars? For the Oscars, yeah. Well, I don't have anything in front of me right now. I'm very pleased that... Black Panther has got so many nominations. Mm -hmm. I'm pleased that Black's, Black Klansman has a lot of nominations. Mm -hmm. I'm a little sad that Blind Spotting got nothing right, yeah. from either award ceremony. Right. I really I have a lot of the a lot of categories where I'm very like very passionate about certain people winning. Like I know that the favorite is nominated in the costuming category but so is black panther and i feel like you know i've spoken about the favorite having this precise lace technique in their costuming but i also know that uh, you know i know the kind of research that was involved in black panther with their costuming and i'm like oh please let them win so i very specific i have very specific passionate <laughs> wants and desires for who should win mm -hmm. uh, in certain categories and so i'm i'm pretty pleased about most of the nominations and I think that the only thing I'm kind of like huh is that the supporting actors category is a little weird a little thin supporting actress so let's go to that here supporting actors are Adam Driver for Black Klansman Mahershala Ali for Green Book Sam Rockwell for Vice Sam Elliott for A Star is Born and Richard E. Grant for Can You Ever Forgive Me? So I guess there's only one, like Sam Rockwell. Mm -hmm. Like, he doesn't make sense. I agree. He's not really there. So, well, it I feels mean, a little weird. It's not his best performance No, and career. especially if you compare it to something like Three Billboards. Mm -hmm. yep. It's like, 
no. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, but I, if you look at Marshala Ali, you know, you look at him in Moonlighting. Is it Moonlighting? Moonlight? Mm, moonlight, sorry. Mm-hmm. Sick brain. So you look at his performance there and you look at his performance in Green Book and you're like, yes, two different stories, but very much a fantastic performance. Sure. Way. Yeah. So that's why I kind of am like, Sam Rockwell, really? Yeah, and we yeah. love Sam Rockwell yeah. in general. I've been a big fan and champion of many of his performances. Uh, the only note I will say about Ali is, you know, that, that is really more of a leading role than a supporting role. So it, it's it's mm. a clear positioning to try to get him that award, putting him in Best Supporting Actor. It's just, and, and he is the clear front runner for that. And even Sam Elliott, who I love, he has, I don't know, it seems to me like maybe 10, 15 minutes of screen time in, in A Star is Born. Really, you know. really good time, but it'll be a little weird if he wins. Yeah, right. So I, I'm with you there. There's a couple things. You know, I found it very surprising. Uh, there's a couple snubs that surprised me. First of all, if Beale Street could talk, um, there's eight out of the possible ten films that were nominated for Best Picture. And if Beale Street Could Talk was the one film that we hadn't seen, and it seemed like it was really getting the momentum for the Best Picture uh, nomination, and it didn't get it. Uh, And I found it very strange that we, you know, for some reason it didn't get enough votes to qualify for that ninth nominated film, you know? And that surprised me. And as well as the uh, director, oh, whose name escapes me right now, uh, for him not to get nominated for Best Director surprised me. Uh, also, a surprising snub is, I, I, well, I'm very glad to see Minding the Gap nominated for Best Documentary. I feel it is the best documentary. I was very surprised to see that Won't You Be My Neighbor got snubbed uh, in favor of, of Fathers and Sons, Hale County This Morning, This Evening, two films I have never heard of before. And then you also have RBG and Free Solo. We've seen RBG. I was really surprised to see Won't You Be My Neighbor not in there in favor of any of those um, other films. That was a favorite documentary of ours. And it it did seem to be the one that transcended its subject about its celebrity. Lastly, I think I was also a little upset and surprised to see Roma get nominated for Best Screenplay. Of course, I've talked about... Uh, about how that is the one thing I did not think was very strong about that film, its screenplay. And so I definitely don't think it's as deserving. You know, I knew we were upset about Mary Poppins getting best uh, score, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. How that score didn't seem to be all that magnificent or original to you. Well, you know, maybe I need to see it again or at least hear it again. But. There were times when they were using themes from the previous film, so I'm a little confused. Like they had changed it a little. They changed it a little bit, but mm. like, why are they getting nominated? So. Yeah, uh, and then other things, just really briefly. I'm surprised that I don't think Paul Schrader got nominated for best director for First Reformed. No, he did not. Uh, Pavel Pavlikovsky for Cold War is an interesting out-of-the-blue nomination. And, you know, you think about it, he got nominated over Mariel, oh, said Mariel Hemingway, what's her name? The director of, of Can You Ever Forgive Me? I apologize, her name's uh, slipping me right now. 
you know, he got nominated over her, got nominated over Deborah Granick, you mentioned for Without a... Leave No Trace. Leave No Trace. Yeah, that, they should have been a nomination know. there. <clears throat> uh, got nominated over the director of If Beale Street Could Talk. You know, this is a, a variety of people. I'm, I'm just very surprised to see this underdog, Pavel Pawlikowski, be nominated. He's also nominated. His film is nominated for Best Foreign Film, along with Alfonso Cuaron's film, Roma, is also nominated for Best Foreign Film. Roma is also nominated for Best Picture. So... It's going to be an interesting awards show. I don't necessarily... I think there's a lot of drive for Roma to win Best Picture. That's definitely not my <laughs> my leaning uh, for it. I think it would be great if Spike Lee, for crying out loud, got some recognition for once. Even though oh, Alfonso Cuaron's direction was really great in Roma. I don't know. We'll we'll probably revisit this after the Academy Awards in a month and see see what uh, what happens. How much anger is there on the other side of the mic here from the results? So that's our reactions currently to the Academy Award nominees and the Golden Globe winners. Let's move on to our main event, which is our review of Glass. It's amazing to meet you. It is simply extraordinary. Maybe this will all make sense if I explain who I am. My name is Dr. Ellie Staple, and I'm a psychiatrist. My work concerns a particular type of delusion of grandeur. It's a growing field. I specialize in those individuals who believe they are superheroes. <laughs> Good for you. The three of you have convinced yourselves you have extraordinary gifts like something out of a comic book. David Dunn, the only person to survive that train wreck all those years ago. What do you do? I'm in security. You think you have superpowers? It's a feeling. Vision. I have to touch them. You believe you are a protector. My name is Patricia. I have no question. There are two dozen identities. I'm Mary Reynolds. Por favor, senora. We almost got you, bro. That live in that body with you. The beast is coming any minute now for you guys. But what I am questioning is your belief that you are something more than human. And yet, it is true. My bones break easily. I've had 94 breaks in my life. But you have an extraordinary IQ. This is not a cartoon. This is the real world. No way. And yet, some of us still don't die with bullets. Some of us can still bend steel. I've been waiting for the world to see that we exist. May I meet the beast? I hope for your sake that he likes you. That sounds like the bad guys teaming up. A lot of people are going to die. Don't do this. Are you ready? 
Mr. Last Name. And now it's from the trailer to M. Night Shyamalan's Glass. IMDb describes Glass as a security guard David Dunn uses his supernatural abilities to track Kevin Wendell Crumb, a disturbed man who has 24 personalities. Interesting note about that plot description. In no way does it actually mention the title character, Mr. Glass played by Sam Jackson. Uh, this film does star James McAvoy, Bruce Willis, Samuel L. Jackson, and, of course, Sarah Paulson. So what we like to do, this has been a while, what we like to do when we review a film is we like to first focus on what we liked about a movie, what was good about a film, before focusing on what we didn't like, what didn't work for us, what was the bad about a film. And then we talk spoilers and final thoughts. Shanna, what were your thoughts? What did you like about Shyamalan's latest film, Glass? I thoroughly enjoyed watching this film. It was very entertaining for me and rather satisfying, given that the, this is the third film. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the end of the trilogy, uh-huh. I guess. Um, it was exciting seeing all three of these characters come together. It was exciting seeing support, supporters for each of these characters. You know, you had... So it was really exciting to see Bruce Willis's son helping him, kind of being the guy in the chair. It was very interesting to see the girl from Split that survived coming to be there for the James McAvoy character. Played by Anya Taylor-Joy. Yeah, and then it was also, you know, it makes sense that Glass's mom would be there for him too. And so it was just really fun to see these great supporters of these, you know, hero slash villain super types. So I thoroughly enjoyed that. And of course, I loved the cinematography that was in this film. There were, there was very interesting ways in which M. Night Shyamalan was using color to help move the story forward and i thoroughly enjoyed that and uh credit should go to mike geolakis geolakis uh who is the cinematographer of the film i have to say like up front uh, i think there's a lot to like about this movie i don't think it is necessarily the disaster that the Rotten Tomatoes score or the critics would necessarily make you think it, the glass is. It's not It's not a flawless film. I'll get into that. But I was, I don't know, the first 45 minutes of this film, I'm with it. You know, it is working. This is, uh, you know, having just rewatched Unbreakable and Split recently, I'm watching the the first act of this film. I'm like, this is this is on on par with what we've seen before. I don't understand why this got horrible reviews. You know, seeing David Dunn, who apparently at this point goes by the name the Overseer, which is not at all a name I would have expected. I would have expected it to be security or or something like that. You know, based on what we saw in Unbreakable. I mean, anyway, seeing him go toe-to-toe against the Beast and the Horde, played by James McAvoy, 
is thrilling. It is a lot of fun. It's it's exactly what I want to see, you know, seeing where these characters are after at this point after um the previous films is very satisfying. I was thrilled to see Spencer Treat Clark come back as Joseph Dunn, David Dunn's son. That was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, that's so cool. You know, to have Casey, uh, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, come back is, uh, is fantastic. Having Elijah Price's mom come back is fantastic. And in fact, there is a shot at one point in the movie where all these characters converge together. And it is absolutely thrilling. I, I just got such a kick out of all of this, you know, these things coming together in this film. Sam Jackson, when he gets to shine, he shines. It's, it's fun having him back as Mr. Glass. More about him in a moment, but I, I feel like there's, there is actually a lot to enjoy about this film. I, I did actually like the movie, but I do have more to say, and let's move on to Shanna. What was, if anything, didn't work for you, or what was the bad about the film? I can't really, it's been a while since we've seen it, and I'm sick. So I could be forgetting something, but as far as I can tell, there isn't really anything that I'm not pleased with uh, that I can talk about in the non-spoiler section. Really? Okay. Well, then what I'll do is I'll, I'll speak in general terms some of the stuff that didn't land for me, and then we can talk a little bit more in detail in the spoilers. So for me, the everything's going really well. And then we get to the hospital that's featured in the trailers. And that's when things start to get a little shaky and a little bit wonky. Just little things here or there. It follows this trope of people who should know better doing stupid, stupid things. Oh, I hear what you're saying. You know? And we could get more specific in spoilers about that. But that starts to add up a little bit, you know, just kind of whittling away at the greatness of the movie as that goes along, you know, and then, and that gets frustrating. But the biggest issue, uh, and I wish that was the biggest issue of the film, but the biggest issue of the film really ends up with the third act reveal and the end of the film because it just lands like a, it just thuds for me and I'm left in the final moments of the film, thinking, wait a minute, you know, this is what these three films have been leading up to? This is what Unbreakable, the setup of Unbreakable, and the reveal of Split has been leading up to? Is this? And I just didn't, it didn't sit right. It felt, it felt kind of anticlimactic, really, and... It just felt like disappointment, and it really ultimately made Glass the inferior film of the trilogy, and mean more so when you when you understand that this is the the, the the trilogy ender, right? And so everything leading up to this, ah, it just kind of like ah, it's not, it's just not as good as Split or Unbreakable because of that third act. And uh, we can get into more detail on that in, in the, 
in spoilers, but that's that's really like my biggest problem with the film. Um, and also, you know, with, with Sam Jackson, it's worth noting like the film's called Glass, and I don't think he factors really until like 45 minutes in the film and he doesn't really get to do anything until like 90 minutes into the film or something how long is this thing anyway it is uh, two hours nine minutes yeah i could swear it's like 90 minutes before sam jackson gets to do anything in the film and so that's a slight that disappointment a when you yeah. think about it yeah you know because when he is oh we're coming to life now you know it's it's pretty awesome but uh you know because he's he's fulfilling his his identity as mr glass as the villain you know um that he's revealed to be at the end of unbreakable so that's a little bit disappointing too so ah i i just am left with like oh you you had something going good and the first half is just really 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 solid and enjoyable just gets a little bit shaky and then it just poof ah <laughs> drops out at the end for me so uh, did you have any response to any of that um i can understand your frustrations yeah it you know this is we assume that this is gloss's film and we don't really see him doing a lot until later i think that it would have been better if he had started doing things sooner they could have had him in this like silent mode because I mean, that's what Gloss does. He's thinking mm-hmm. and he's planning and scheming. Yeah. But it didn't have to be for that entire time. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and there is stupid stuff happening that I can't say, but. Right. There are like precautions that could have been taken that should have been taken from the get go that weren't. So that's interesting. Well, let's get into that in a second here. If you haven't seen a Glass yet. You want to skip ahead to the film faves section because we're going to get into spoilers here. But I would say at this point, I would say I like the movie. But if you're a big fan of what's been coming for the past 18 years, steal yourself for a a second half letdown. I, I recommend it for the first half at the very least. And some great stuff that happens sprinkled throughout the second half. Shanna, do you have any thoughts for those who haven't seen the film? Oh, I think you should go watch it. What's the matter with you? <laughs> <laughs> go watch it. I mean, M. Night Shyamalan has had a lot of duds, and the, I thought this was great. All right, cool. So from here on out, spoilers for Glass starting now. This is where heroes and villains die. Not in Marvel. Hashtag bring back Gamora. Uh-huh. So what are you saying? I'm saying that it's good that all three of them died at you, the end. Really? Okay. Yeah, I think it's good. It's like, it's the, it's like, look, there's not little kids invested in this. Uh-huh. Like, whereas, like, there are kids invested in the Marvel franchise. Sure, sure. So it's very hurtful and very sad when, you know, X, uh, Infinity War happened. Sure. I always want to say Xfinity. <laughs> so if it happens, just forgive me. I felt like this is the place where they die. This is the mm. place where because it's a evil real world, wins, you know. Yeah, it's a real world. Uh-huh. You know, Marvel. I feel like no, they shouldn't die. Uh-huh. You know, they can get badly hurt. But uh, anyway, okay. like this is where supers die. They die here in films like this, and they die in films like Watchmen, and they die in films 
like kick ass, that's where they should be dying. Okay. So the point is, though, you were satisfied with all three characters dying, essentially. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I was, like, freaking out and hyperventilating a little bit. But, uh-huh. uh, because, I, you know, ultimately you don't want them to die. But it made sense that they died. Because once the evil corporation revealed themselves, it made sense, you know, that Samuel L. Jackson, well, Gloss, was going through this for decades trying to find others like him mm. and he couldn't find them and he probably knew that he couldn't get to them because they were dying you know by the hands of this corporation that's just an assumption but i i kind of like the idea that there's this <laughs> parent squashing your comic book reading so so let's clarify this um to spell it out there it is revealed there is an, a secret organization that their mission is to maintain balance in the world by making sure the public never knows that supers exist. And by killing all of them. Killing all of them, yes. not really a balance. Right. Really, Um, it's a dominance of human. Yeah, I mean, they see the current existence, the status quo, as how things need to be maintained. Right, mm. they see that supers essentially. Uh, I think they have a different term for it in the actual movie, but supers essentially upset this balance of the status quo, and they exist to to maintain that balance. Even going so far as executing, if they can't psychologically defeat them first, right? Because that was her initial goal, was to psychologically defeat them by making them doubt who they are so much that they believe they actually aren't super, right? And that was a really interesting concept. Yeah, okay. I I, in theory, yes. In execution, I'm not sure I agree with you there. Because basically, you have um, this, this culminating climax of these three awesome characters and then you have someone kind of come out of the blue that you've never even seen or heard of before come and kill them all you know just kind of like out of left field essentially and that kind of feels like a bit of a cheat and i was and i'll say like um while i expected glass to be shattered in this film because you deal with something like the beast and that you can't you that can't be a a relationship that's going to be maintained for a very long time Uh, but i was disappointed that david dunn was killed i was a little bit like joseph (laughs) you know uh, wanting to cry and scream and and you know uh beat somebody up for it you know but the but the basic thing is when it gets down to it this reveal of this bigger organization and then on top of that, this reveal that, oh, Glass actually recorded everything so the world can learn about supers anyway. And having the three characters that, that tie them together, uh, Mrs. Price, Casey, and Joseph, coming together and releasing this to the world, I just kept thinking, like, well, so what? Like, it didn't seem satisfactory at all to me. Like... You're telling me that these three films lead up to the super them all being dead 
and and their allies more or less just releasing their information or video of them uh, to the world. That's what this really adds up to. And it felt so dissatisfying to me. I, I, I was like, well, that doesn't mean anything because they're dead. You know, like, what good does it do letting people know that they exist? There's not much that you are promising from this, you know? And so it was very, like, unsatisfying ending uh, to me. It just kind of, that's where it kind of landed with a thud. I guess the ending could have been a bit better. There should have been even at least a sign that there was another super realizing their powers by watching. Like we could have sure. had a glow in the eyes or something very subtle and tasteful. Sure. Uh, but we didn't get any of that. Because you're saying that the whole point is that... It's supposed to wake up other supers because mm-hmm. who is it that the psychologist was you know, the head of the... Mm-hmm. Sarah organizer. Paulson. Yeah. She says, you know, once you pop up, another pops up, and mm-hmm. another pops up, and another pops up, and it, she carries on. Like, so in my mind, I'm guessing as soon as people see that video that will get released, people will be like, oh my gosh, that's me. Oh my gosh, that's me. And it'll cause a really great, uh, fast ripple effect of people realizing themselves. Mm. No, maybe not necessarily because there's a video there. Maybe it's going to be tied to another event and, you know, it'll, you know, it'll unfold. So I kind of, I, it felt very, oh, that's something that, you know, preteens would do is they'd send a video online and, and wait for it to go viral. It didn't feel very action orientated past that. I think I agree that I would have been sold on the ending if it actually showed people that were supers in some way, you know, seeing the video and, and, and having some self, self-actualization or something, you know, just different shots. You self-doubt know, almost, going, yeah. Well, not self-doubt, but, you know, yeah. self-actualization of, you know, seeing different shots of these uh, people and what they can do or whatever, you know. I think that, that would have been very exciting. Yes. Yeah. That would have been exciting. That is the opposite of what this ending was. <laughs> so that's that's why I'm just like, ah, I'm just really bummed. Like it is uh, it takes what is a really damn good film and just makes it an a, a, an okay film, a, a good film, you know. It is definitely not as good as Split and it's not as good as Unbreakable. The other things, just to backtrack a little bit, I was saying it gets a little wonky at the hospital. It does often follow this trope of people who are very well well, uh, trained, people who who are in a situation where they have to take a lot of precautions, not taking precautions and being very dumb, you know? Um, Um, There is a point where the the doctor says, or you, you hear one of the nurses say, oh, well, how long are they going to be here? So you can tell they've kind of been overtaken. That's not usually who's running the place. And it's kind of like yes. they're, just, they're just using the space. Yes. However, if you assign certain staff to take care of or oversee certain patients or inmates or whatever of your, whatever your facility is, you're going to make sure they are aware of the dangers 
of those inmates, right? Or those patients, right? You're going to make sure that they're well trained, you know, to how to how to keep their distance or, you know, and, and also in any situation, hey, you know, if you find in a video screen that someone is clearly dead with blood coming out of their throat, maybe hit an alarm and call like the police or something. You know, don't go, hey, I'm gonna go inspect that. <laughs> you know, maybe there's cause for alarm there. You know, there's some there's some really stupid shit like that that happens, you know? And that that's where it gets to be like not as smart as everything we've seen before in this film and in the other films. And it starts to get a little wonky um, and stumble a little. Um, I wish that was the worst of, of the movie, though. Do you have any other thoughts about the movie or anything that it's trying to say or any anything else? Uh, not at this time. Do you? No, I think I've, I've probably aired my grievances and, and praise of the film. I do seriously think, I don't think it's an awful or terrible film. I think I if you look at Rotten Tomatoes, a website that I love and 80% of the time is right in lockstep with what I find to be accurate. In, in this particular case, it will make you think, oh my god, this is a really shitty movie. Shyamalan has gone back to the happening or last airbender territory here. It's not that at all. It, I would say it is at least half of a very good film and half of an okay film. And so I give the film a 6 out of 10 overall. How about you? Yeah, that sounds about fair. Even though you liked it more than me. Well, it doesn't matter if I liked it more than you. Um, I, like, film-wise, I guess that score makes sense. Okay. All right. Well, what did you think about Glass? Are you someone online who loved the film? Are you someone who had issues with the film? Feel free to write to us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. Now it's time for us to move into the final segment of our show, which is Film Faves. Film Phase traditionally is a segment inspired by a recurring article at the Gibson Review, wherein we count down our respective 12 favorite films around a particular topic. Usually we're marching backwards through time in doing so. The purpose of it is to not only give you a sense of our tastes in film, but also hopefully spotlight things maybe you haven't heard of before. And to that end, we try to point in the direction of where you can find them to stream. Uh, particularly, we focus on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, and HBO Now. Uh, unfortunately, not every movie is available on those platforms, but we do make note when that is the case. With this episode, we're starting something different and new that's going to continue throughout the year. This is the year 2019. We are at the end of a decade here. So what we're going to do is we are going to go through a monthly, uh, every other episode probably, and count down our favorite films genre by genre of the decade. And uh, this will actually have a corresponding article on the Gibson Review where I will actually be writing the best films of the decade to the corresponding genres. And it will ultimately culminate to an article that counts down the 100 greatest films of the decade and highlight especially the top 10 films of the decade at the end of the year. 
for this episode, since it's February, we thought we would start with love stories of the decade. So, what we did was we took a look at all, all the films of the decade where the main plot, the main story of the film was geared towards some sort of a relationship, be it a marriage, be it a new relationship of some kind. It could be a rom-com and do something different or refreshing with the rom-com uh, genre, or it could actually just be a film that through its primary plot, it has something to say about the nature of love or and relationships. So that was the qualifiers for this list. Shanna, uh, do you have any thoughts about your list in general? Any things you noticed uh, were trending or a particular year that dominated uh, love stories for you? It seems that I have quite a few stories happening in 2017. I believe there's about four, which is quite a big chunk out of you know 12 films. That's a third of my selection. Wow. And then we've got some 2012 and some 2013, and then everything else is kind of, you know, varied out. So that's interesting. 2013 and 2017 seem to be the years where... Uh, 2013 and 2017. Where my happy place is, apparently. Very cool. So why don't you get us started with your number 12 favorite love story of the decade? So what we've got for number 12 is The Spectacular Now from 2013, available on Netflix. It's described as a hard party in high school seniors' philosophy on life changes. Shocking. When he meets the not-so-typical nice girl. It stars Miles Taylor, Shailene Woodley, Kyle Chandler. One thing that I noted that's very important about this film is, you know, love is a tricky thing when you're so young, as in high school or even you know if you're in 11th grade or 12th grade it's it's a tricky thing to try and navigate it's a tricky thing to try and understand and I think everybody around that age understands that on some level uh, which is why some people can be really harsh about the concept of love and, and some can you know go the opposite side of the spectrum um, and it's very rare that you have something in the middle uh, it also depicts, you know, first sexual experience very well in a realistic fashion, which I always believe is important to note or see, because mm. if you're going to watch it with your kids as they get older, I mean, everything depends on who you are as a parent, but if, I, I think from my perspective, it's like, I want my kids to see it hurts the first time, and it's not going to work a couple you know it's going to take a while to figure it out mm -hmm. and I don't want it to be I, I don't want them to think that it's like every other movie where it's like oh this is this glorious thing and they haven't shown a history of sexual experiences for you know first time viewers first time people trying to understand the concept it's it's kind of a weird thing mm -hmm. so uh, that's something I'd like to know it's very sweet it's a little charming and it's realistic in certain aspects. Very cool. And is that available to stream? Yes, I did already say that it was on Netflix. Oh. So for my list, I noticed that 2013, it's interesting you mentioned 2013. 2013 was a big year for my list as well. Mm. As four of my picks 
are from the year 2013. Uh, three, four. And, and then next to that is also 2017, but um, as well, I think 2011 have like two picks each too. So 2013 apparently was a very strong year overall in the decade for love stories. And I'm going to start mine off though with a film from 2011. It's by Woody Allen. It's called Midnight in Paris. Oh, I have nothing from 2011. That's interesting. So that's cool this that is, you have something. Yes, I have two things from 2011. We'll get to the other pick later on. But this one, it starred Owen Wilson and Rachel McAdams and Marion Cotillard and a slew of other well-known actors. And basically, Owen Wilson, he's on a trip to Paris with his very snobby well-to-do wife played by Rachel Rachel McAdams and he goes for a stroll through Paris and next thing he knows he's time traveling to I think it's like the 1920s and it's a very romantic time he meets Ernest Hemingway and all these famous modernist artists of the time I think Kathy Bates plays somebody if I remember correctly and he meets Marion Cotillard. Well, and then he begins to a romance with Marion Cotillard. And what's interesting about this film is it is saying something about hanging on to time, our, our relationship with time. We always look back at other times with fondness. Uh, things were better in, in, in XYZ time, you know? And, and the reality is, well, that's not necessarily the case, you know? And it's better to exist in the now or or move forward in life. And ultimately, that's uh, what Owen Wilson and ends up doing is, is letting go and moving forward with his life uh, away from his current uh, vacuous relationship. So I enjoy Midnight in Paris uh, quite a bit. It's one of the highlights of Alan's career in recent uh, history in his twilight years. Uh, What is your next film, Shanna? My next one is Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. It's from 2017 and it's available to stream on Hulu. Yay! The story of psychologist William Moulton Marston and his polyamorous relationship with his wife and their mistress who would inspire his creation of the superhero and Wonder Woman. This is a very interesting pick because, you know, ultimately society and sometime legislature is trying to control how we love each other. And I feel like as long as no one is getting hurt, everyone is consenting mm-hmm. and it's not with minors, then we're not doing anything wrong, are we? Right. And these three people loved each other very dearly. It's depicted so beautifully in the film. Mm-hmm. How they're caring for each other and loving for each other and going through different sexual experiences together. And they're even making a family together. They're having, you know, they're having children. And it's just, it, they're so sweet and, and beautiful with each other. And even when there's a challenge, as there is with relationships, they, they come through it on the other end in a very painfully loving way if that makes sense Mm -hmm. and uh it stars luke evans rebecca hall bella heathcote and it's it's based on true events and Mm -hmm. i think it's quite a lovely film that is an awesome awesome pick that that's just yeah that's a very good film 
My next film is my first from 2013. It is Nicole Hall of Center's Enough Said, starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus and the the late James Gandolfini. I'm glad you picked that one. Yeah, this is a... That's a good film. Yeah, this is a really great midlife romance film, I believe. And, you know, it... It has a realness to it. It has grounded performances by Gandolfini and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I believe Catherine Keener is in it as well. I think as Gandolfini's ex, if I remember correctly. It's just, you know, Nicole Holofcener is a very interesting director. We've talked about her a few times in this podcast and how she handles usually characters that are fairly well off and their relationships and this was the one film where she the focus wasn't so much on how money changes the relationships uh, or can affect relationships with people it was really more about this time in their life where they have kids who are becoming adults and you know, it's like, do I want to start over? And the challenges of starting over with someone else and all that sort of stuff. It's a really lovely film. And I think that it's one that people, more people should discover and seek out. And I hope they do. That's enough said from 2013. My number 10 is Brooklyn from 2015. It looks like this is not available to stream right now but is totally worth renting. An Irish immigrant, so this is played by Saoirse Ronan, lands in 1950s Brooklyn, where she quickly falls into a romance with a local. When her past catches up with her, however, she must choose between two countries and the lives that exist within. This is a wonderful film about not only the love she has for the people around her, but also the two countries that exist in her life. She has a love for the United States. She has a love for Ireland. And she's trying to figure out which one is going to be home to her. Sometimes people, you know, go away to experience different different cultures. Sometimes they go away to, you know, make a better life. But there's always going to be something that exists within you. Is this the right choice that I'm making living in this country as opposed to that country? And for anyone that has immigrated anywhere this film is very relatable and takes the experience and really puts it on the screen so that if you're not an immigrant you can certainly you know see how it does it's not an easy decision to be an immigrant i don't want anyone to think that oh it's easy to want to immigrate it's not and you know it takes some time before you're completely comfortable with your ultimate decision too you do go back and forth within yourself wondering if that was the right decision to make Um, So it's not only, as I said, not only a love for another person, but also a love for a country. Very cool. That's awesome. My next film is Moonrise Kingdom by Wes Anderson from 2012. The thing I love about this movie is, gosh, you know, there's a a wonderful score. The the composition of, of the shots are incredible um the as well as the blocking of the actors the direction of the actors is just so it has so much like of a specific personality to it you know 
uh, the way Edward Norton walks up, marches up to the the kids in his troop is is like is very precise, you know, and very with authority, and of, of course, and how he ends up walking up to his authorities of the whatever um i can't even remember what the what the um what the group is called and is different and i don't know there's uh so many things there's a dollhouse quality to the uh, opening shots of the film as it goes through the, the house that bill murray and francis mcdormand uh their family lives in there's so much like square framing throughout the film is just something that is unlike anything else I've seen. And of course, at the uh, the heart of this is a love story between two adolescents. And it's an there's an innocence uh, to it. You know, there's a simplicity to it. It doesn't get like it doesn't get too sexual or or uh, lascivious or anything. It's just a really beautiful love story where these two people are determined to be together. And I, I am very charmed by that. And I also, one last thing, really enjoyed the back and forth of their correspondence. The cutting of that scene uh, is really fun and, and uh, one of the standouts for me of the film. Anyway, uh, I could go on for a while. Moonrise Kingdom is my next pick. Um, and I absolutely enjoy it and love it. My number nine is Scott Pilgrim vs. The World from 2010. It's available on Netflix. Yay! <laughs> um, and there's nothing too dramatic that happens in this film. This is definitely more of a fun film than a serious film. Hmm. There's, you know, so if you're feeling very sensitive today for whatever reason, I would say go watch that one. <laughs> it's not going to irk anything. Scott Pilgrim must defeat his new girlfriend's seven evil exes in order to win her heart. And it's very video game like. You've got little happening in the background you you know you even get a life you get a i don't know he gets coins or something he's Uh doing all these really weird things i was not familiar with the graphic novel or comic book series whichever which term is it uh it is actually a series of graphic novels as a matter of fact so i was not aware of that the film is my first exposure to it Mm mm-hmm and that was really fun because in 2010 I hadn't been exposed to nearly enough mm-hmm. comic book anything. And so when I watched it for the first time, I was like, what the fuck is happening here? <laughs> and it was really fun for me. So, you know, you've got Michael Sarah, mm-hmm. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Kieran Culkin, and it's always nice to see Kieran Culkin. Mm-hmm. So, and he's great in that movie, yeah. Yeah, I think the performances are all really fun and you can tell everyone is having fun with whichever, you know, character they're being. And Brie Larson is in it yes. as well, before I even knew who Brie Larson was. Very good pick. Okay, so my next pick actually is from 2013. It is the film Her, a Spike Jones love story. I just want to say that Jeff is holding his heart right now. It's oh. very cute. <laughs> I'm completely unconscious. Uh, you can find this film on Netflix and I strongly recommend that you do because I would say of all the films I'm, I'm going to speak to this is probably the one that has that depicts the most range of emotions and feelings and experiences in love. You have the mopey 
like heartbreak of a breakup of a long-standing relationship you have the excitement of a of discovering someone new that you connect with in it you have all the different colors that come with a, a relationship as well and all of this is regarding a relationship with an operating system of course this stars Joaquin Phoenix with support from Amy Adams and Rooney Mara and an early Chris Pratt movie role as well but Joaquin Phoenix just uh, is great in this film but even better is Scarlett Johansson who plays the voice of the operating system giving what I feel is probably her best performance of her career because this vocal performance transcends and you do believe just as Joaquin Phoenix's character does that this is someone that is or something that is a living breathing presence that this is someone that you it's believable you could have a relationship there's no disconnect it is it is quite extraordinary uh, i absolutely love her it is my ninth favorite love story of the decade find it on netflix my number eight is a ghost story from 2017 it's available on prime i highly recommend watching this film uh, cinematography wise it is so enchanting there's so much beauty happening this is really a film about a, a beautiful relationship a loving relationship and then a loss mm -hmm. of the person and I can only imagine how much emotion I'm going to experience the day I lose you but I imagine it's going to be something incredibly traumatizing maybe 10 times worse than what the person who's left behind experiences in this film. And I think it's just so interesting how they deal with it, but they're not only dealing with the person that's left behind, they're dealing with the ghost as well, the person who's passed. And that's very interesting. And it's, it's kind of this play on time a little bit where mm -hmm. it's like, well, what is time going to feel like once you've lost your other person? And I think they do a really interesting depiction of that through him being a ghost. He's seen people move in and out of his home where he passed, essentially, where he was living when he passed. And I think that that's really fascinating. Mm. That is a, a, a fantastic film. It definitely deserved a lot more than it got. And it's not too it's mopey. Yeah. You'd think that it is because it's the loss of your person. But it's it's not too mopey. It's more interesting about the concept than anything else. I agree. That's a great, great film. My next film is Before Midnight from the year 2013 as well. Richard Linklater, of course, directed. Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy stars is the third film in the Before Trilogy where we meet up with Jesse and Celine every nine years. And, you know, this is a film that talks a lot about love and relationships. And it's definitely a film for those who love dialogue, who love walk and talk films, who 
are interested in introspection and and discussing the nature of relationships and expectations you know in this film it's looking at uh, that through the lens of a marriage of a marriage that's you know been together for about a decade you know and it's a it's one of the most mature films mature love stories of the decade and it has a lot to say about uh, marriage itself and the work that is necessary for a marriage to continue and thrive you know and sometimes there are fights and there's harm that needs to be repaired between the couple and before midnight explores those real aspects of relationships better than most movies i've seen this decade and i i love it i love it very much uh so that is before midnight from 2013. my next film number seven is about time from 2013 it is not available to stream anywhere unfortunately but totally worth a purchase at age 21 tim discovers he can travel in time and change what happens and has happened in his own life his decision to make his world a better place by getting a girlfriend turns out not to be as easy as you might think well gee golly <laughs> imagine that uh this is a lovely time time traveling film it's nice that it's unique in that he can only influence his own timeline and not others and that's really interesting and yeah. it's you know speaking of marriages are going to have fights it's just the way it is and you come out on the other end that's what matters well i think he does this like one scene where there's a fight that happens and he's like well maybe if i don't say xyz i can avoid it so he goes back in time and he says something else and they still end up fighting <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and then he has to deal with the fight as it comes so it's interesting play on well would i have to deal with it if i did this differently and you know what most of the time if it's your person that you've chosen to be with yes you are going to have to deal with it either immediately there or in a couple days so it's really fun yeah, that's an excellent pick. It's one that I've actually been itching to rewatch. Uh, Richard Curtis film, by the way. Uh, very enjoyable. And uh, it, it definitely was in consideration for my list. My next pick, however, is 2018's A Star is Born. Really? Yes. I was absolutely taken by this relationship, uh, grounded by the performances of Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, of course. Lady Gaga, to me, completely outshining Bradley Cooper, who I think is one of the best uh, best actors of this decade. You know, this is a relationship that is about uh, discovery. It's a relationship about helping, not save, but ground one, um, one part of the, the relationship who's troubled, who's got um, dependency issues, you know, and comes close to not, not necessarily saving, but again, supporting and helping that person through those issues. It's a beautiful story. I, I love it. And, and of course, it is elevated by the musical performances 
throughout. And oh, it is also worth noting that there is something to be said about supporting a couple who in their in respective careers too, being there for each other's successes and failures. I think that's that's one strength of this film as a love story as well. That kind of helps it stand out above above the bunch that I am talking about tonight. So that's a star is born from 2018. My number six is The Big Sick from 2017, available on Prime. Go ahead and watch it. This one is good too. This one's not so sappy. It's like the right amount of everything that you want in a romance film. This is a film about Pakistan-born comedian Kumal and grad student Emily who fall in love, but they struggle with their cultures a bit. And Emily contracts a mysterious illness and Kamal is the next point of contact, and so uh, he is forced to deal with not only her parents, but his family <laughs> and his feelings for Emily. And it's just, oh my gosh, we watched half an hour of this the other day just to see if it would still make the list. Mm-hmm. And we would have just carried on watching it, but we, you know, we had certain priorities we needed to fulfill. But this is the kind of film that you could, I feel, you could watch over and over again, and it's not... There's nothing cheesy about it, and there's nothing too sappy about it. Yeah, absolutely. That's an excellent pick. My sixth favorite love story of the decade, hitting the halfway mark of this list, is my other musical choice, La La Land. Another great example of trying to support each other in your own careers and your own successes you know, this looks at whether or not it's possible for two people with with equally strong passions to be able to exist in a relationship, or does one have to sacrifice for the benefit of the relationship? You know, to for the relationship to survive. Of course, it is also an homage to the to the musicals of the fifties and sixties, and it has delightful and wonderful dance numbers and great songbook i adore of course emma stone and ryan gosling star in this film which i think if i remember correctly is damien chazelle's second film if i'm not mistaken just a wonderful film i i get shit for praising this sometimes but i really do think it is a just a great film and one of the best love stories of the decade and so it's my number six my sixth favorite love story of the decade my number five is your name from 2016 oh such a great choice (laughs) the original title i think i would butcher it's kimi nonawa yeah sounds perfect we're just gonna edit that out two this is by makata shinkai it's it's a really wonderful film Two strangers find themselves linked in a bizarre way. When a connection forms, becomes interesting because is distance the only thing separating them? Is it time? Is it a series of events that are separating them? It's a very sweet film. I love it very much. At some point, I'm going to purchase it because not only is this a very sweet love story, but it, it is an animated film and it's an anime yeah yeah and the style the settings the clouds the blue sky (laughs) it's all just 
a feast for the eyes. So I will definitely be purchasing this at some point. Very cool. My fifth favorite love story of the decade is Band-Aid from 2017. You know, I talked a little bit before about, in context of before midnight, um, had the reality of marriage and, and getting invites and stuff. Now, this is a film that does something fun with the concept of of fights in a relationship. You know, it, it, it's a couple that realize that they need to hash it out somehow, and the most constructive way they can figure out to do that is to create a band and create songs that through its lyrics hash out their problems in their relationship it's it's a great release for them and you know what the songs aren't half bad i i i really love this film by zoe lister jones i wish it was a little easier to to be able to find and and it was definitely one of the most overlooked films of 2017 adam pally plays her husband in the film and Fred Armisen plays their somewhat kooky neighbor uh, who isn't as as kooky or over the top as he could have been, which is great and a credit to the film. But he definitely adds something uh, to the mix that is, is just very enjoyable. Uh, but it's very well directed and written by Zoe. Love this film. And it's a great look at how to how to deal with those problems in in marriage so that's band-aid from 2017 my number four is moonrise kingdom from 2012 and you've spoken about this i love this film so much we watched it recently it's just pristine in its cinematography Mm -hmm. and its script and its performances it's just a really grand film at some point we will get the criterion of it that's how perfect this film is and i just i really love that they love each other at this young age they're certain of each other and there we go and if it's not going to work out so what just let them experience being certain about something so i don't know if i'm going to feel that way later like if logan were to act like that i don't know but there we go my next film my fourth favorite film of the decade as a love story is crazy rich asians which i think is hands down one of the best romantic comedies of the decade it is and it's an all asian cast which just elevates the importance of the film of course but you have okay so just set aside the fact that you have the the asian culture the asian cast all of these which are absolutely significant to what the film is. But you look at the actual story itself and you're, you're looking at your, your basic romantic comedy of, of a conflict between family and relationship. You know, you mention this kind of conflict or at least you reference this kind of conflict in The Big Sick. You know, another really great love story of the decade. You know, you have it here as well in Crazy Rich Asians, except it just does it in a spicier, unique way, you know, in different settings, different environments that we've seen. There's different contexts, I guess is what I'm saying, that we've seen before with a slew of, of great talents, you know. You got Aquafina, Constance Wu, several others. So, yeah, Crazy Rich Asians is probably one of the most fun 
uh, love stories of the decade, and it is my fourth favorite of the decade. My number three is Two Days in New York from 2012, available on Hulu. Very cool. This I, I love this film so much because, again, we're, we're playing with this idea of you know, an immigrant's family coming to visit, coming to stay. Mm-hmm. So you've got Julie Delpy, which she's amazing. And then you've also got Chris Rock, which is... These two are such a fun duo. I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't know how you guys figured this out, that the two of you should be together in a film, but I'm really glad it happened. Manhattan couple Marion and Mingus, who each have children from prior relationships, find their comfortable family dynamic jostled, by a visit from Marion's relatives. And just chaos ensues. It gets worse. It gets crazy. It's like, and that's sometimes what happens in marriage. It's like a fucking freak train on the run. <laughs> and it's like, you have to bring it back and you have to be like, okay, we're going to fix what all the freak train did. But sometimes, you know what, you have to let the freak train go and run its course and, and then, you know, deal with it from there. And that's really what's awesome about Chris Rock in this. He's like, I'm just going to let this freak train go. We're just going to see what happens if we come out on the other end. And and everything is hunky-dory awesome. Yeah, that's a really enjoyable uh, film. That's awesome. My third favorite love story of the decade is Friends with Benefits from 2011 with Justin Timberlake. And who, Shanna? Mila Kunis. Mila Kunis. I mean, it's Mila Kunis and Justin Timberlake. So first of all, that is hard to argue with. But these are basically uh, two people who decide to be friends with benefits. So they're they're, they're friends and they want to have sex on the side. But of course, they can't keep things that way. and, And love blooms. It's... You know, it's a romantic comedy. It's a romantic comedy with a fun, interesting twist with two really engaging stars that you just can't help but love and like. I think it is one of the best examples of the rom-com of the decade, but it's doing something uh, interesting and different twist with it, a different premise with it. This is not, you know... What you find in a lot of Jessica Biel or Jennifer Lopez movies where it's the same old thing of, you know, she's the shopkeeper who's clumsy and, you know, whatever. You know, he's the dream guy and whatever. <laughs> you know, this is something um, completely different and it's quite enjoyable. And this is also when flash mobs were a thing and very popular and that features and that's oh, fun. It's just a hilarious that. movie. I love Friends with Benefits. I'm almost always in the mood for it. So it's my third favorite love story of the decade. <laughs> My second favorite love story of the decade is Band-Aid from 2017. Very cool. Yeah, that isn't available to stream. It's available for purchase, however, and it's worth every cent. Jeff has already spoken about this, you know, the concept of them trying to work through some very intense emotions and issues within their marriage, and they're doing it through song. And this is one of those films where the husband's mother comes in and gives advice and that helps him click Mm. you know what he needs to do because there are times in a marriage no matter how much you love that person no matter how much you're willing to fight for that person there are times where you're gonna battle to get it you Mm. know and sometimes you need mom's advice uh, sometimes 
and I just I really love this film I love the hardship that they're going through and I love how they show how intensely painful it is how it can be and how the hardship has this ripple effect uh, you know you go to a party and you can tell they don't show what caused the actual start of the breakdown of their relationship and that's great I'm not going to spoil it for you if you're intuitive enough you can tell what happened yeah, and yeah. it's it's slowly revealed it slowly is revealed mm-hmm. and you can tell oh my gosh that is what happened mm-hmm. and it's one of those things that doesn't get depicted enough I feel yeah. that affects the ratio of it affecting enough marriages and the rate at which it's depicted in film is not equal at all so I'm really glad this exists very cool my second favorite love story of the decade is in fact the big sick which is available on amazon prime and one of the reasons why this was a clincher was because when i was checking back into it i had a real hard time breaking away from this movie it just moves there is not any dead space in it and it's so enjoyable and so engaging you don't want to break away from it So you have Kumail Nanjiani, a real-life comedian who had this experience with his wife who is played by, what's her name, Zoe uh, Kazan, if I remember correctly, who is absolutely delightful in the film, by the way. And she, she brings a lot of character to the story herself before she succumbs to a sudden illness. You do have this this tension of family cultures and expectations coming into the mix and then on top of it you know they actually broke up before she fell ill and so there's this tension with the parents as well you know so played of course by holly hunter and ray romano who are glorious and fantastic themselves and they also are aren't a couple without their issues so and it's, it's just a, such a, a delightful film. It's, it's, you know, it is kind of a romantic comedy, but again, it's such a unique and interesting premise that's anchored in real-life experience that I think really brings a lot to the film. Plus, I have a thing for films about comedians, and there is um, a little bit of a, a insight into the comedian world in this. Uh, it actually features Bo Burnham, who wrote and directed one of your favorite movies from last year, 8th Grade. Uh, so that's kind of cool, too. Uh, so that's The Big Sick on Amazon Prime from 2017. You know, I completely forgot that they show what it's like on each end with the families. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's hilarious how it unfolds. It's just yeah. so funny. You can see the brother-brother relationship and it's like, oh, well, you're doing something wrong. And now, now all the light, it's not on you, it's on me. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, yeah. It's it's so freaking true. <laughs> yeah. So, what is your favorite love story uh, of the decade? My number one is "Only Lovers Left Alive." Oh, of, of course. course it is. From 2013, a depressed musician reunites with his lover, though their romance, which has already endured several centuries, Isn't that 2014. Sound it's actually from 2014, but oh, yes, sorry. it is. It's like yes, <laughs> for the win, is disrupted by the arrival of her uncontrollable younger sister. I, it's it's got Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston, Hiddleston mm-hmm. and it's just it's amazing. It's my favorite vampire movie. It's my favorite love movie. It's my favorite everything. 
like these two have time apart from each other because they have time so if one right. wants to experience morocco then the one goes if the one wants to just be by themselves in detroit there we go right. you know so it's like there's no pressure from either of them but when they you know when tilda swinton is concerned about tom hiddleston she's there in a flash and it's like oh my god that's so lovely and then when they embrace again i don't know how long they've been away from each other but it's it's maybe like 100 or 250 years or something what i want to say um, yeah oddly enough that sounds right but. yeah and it's like when they reunite they're just like everything that was there before is there again and it's just beautiful very cool my favorite love story of the decade is available on Netflix. It is Scott Pilgrim versus the World <laughs> from 2010, directed by Edgar Wright from the Scott O'Malley graphic novel Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Here, here's the thing, and I, I wrote about this. Uh, I have a previous article, uh, a review of this film. I'll try to link to it in the show notes. I go into more detail. But this film is more than meets the eye. Not only, okay, you have this incredibly dazzling video game premise to it and the visuals, but really like what you have going on here is this idea of dealing with your past, your past relationships, and, and, and your girlfriend's past relationships. And it's like, it really like taps into an actual struggle or experience of you know you want to avoid these people in your life you know at you, all costs right right but like they're kind of what helped make you who you are at that point in your life you know and and it's interesting because like they because of them you bring to a relationship a certain amount of baggage too you know that that your partner has to kind of weave and work through, you know? And I, I just love the film for tapping into with, you know, these, these metaphors about a relationship and about our past relationships that's so unique and in such a fun and dazzling and entertaining way. It's, it's such a great film and I, I, I love it so much. Yeah, that is Scott Pilgrim versus the world from 2010 available on netflix those are our favorite love stories of the decade what are your favorite love stories of the decade email us at the gibson review at gmail.com that is going about do it for us in this episode of the movie lover shanna where can people find you on the internet you can find me at hashtag bring Gamora back. Oh my god. You don't even make in that hashtag. Yeah. I think I've made it twice. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Jeez Louise. It's just a saying at this point. Anyway, you can find me at shannapaxton.com S-H-A-N-N-A-P-A-X-T-O-N.com and you can find my channels from there. Uh, go to the Gibson Review, um, dot com or I think you can actually access it through Blogspot. Go to the facebook.com slash the Gibson Review. You can also access the link to the main site through there. On Facebook, you'll also find third-party links and occasionally mini-reviews and other things. 
Uh, and of course you can find this podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. Feel free to subscribe, leave us a review, help um, more people to be able to find us, all that sort of stuff. And go to Flickchart, the Gibson 99, you'll find me on there and, and my list of movies I've seen. Okay, so next time on The Movie Lovers, it is our 49th episode, and we will be back with a main review of Le- Lego Movie 2. And our march backwards through time will be back. It's taken a two-month hiatus, and it's going to be back this time with our favorite films of 1989. So look for that on February 19th, just after Valentine's Day. We hope you lovers out there have a wonderful Valentine's Day. You know, same thing with you movie lovers out there. You know, snuggle up to a great romance film. Maybe we've given you a couple great ideas uh, with this episode. And until the next episode, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying... Bye-bye.